0: Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm pretty excited, actually. We're talking about Facebook, aren't we? <laughs> no. That is a funny response,
1: both because no, we are not, and two, because we're talking about like, the exact opposite sort of thing. The, like all the Facebook discussions, as of late, there's a lot less strategy and a lot more sort of like hand to the face sort of stuff. I like talking about strategy. We're talking about a fascinating strategic decision, and it is not Facebook, it is family friendly. Disney. Oh, wow. That was a nice segue. I am impressed. Well, <laughs> I mean, there was nowhere to go but up after that joke. So I wrote this week about a super interesting announcement that happened last week. I actually kind of hinted at it on the podcast. Disney announcing their sort of streaming service, which we knew was coming. We've talked about Disney several times in the past, actually. It's a really interesting company for all kinds of reasons. It's a company that obviously has sort of highly differentiated content. It's a company that has very much been impacted by the internet. And wrapped up all in there, I think, is a discussion that I hope to have, not just about the decision they made, and not just, frankly, the strategy that they chose, but also the way I feel like they approach the strategy, and what that says not just about Disney, not just about TV, but also about the internet broadly, and
0: the way you make sort of strategic decisions. So, I think there's a lot there to cover. 100%. I find this so exciting because I almost feel like what we're going to get into is almost like a metaphor for how a successful old world company can figure out how to bring themselves into the new paradigm of the internet. And it feels like they have been incredibly thoughtful in the approach. And I'm just as excited as you are to talk about it. Absolutely.
1: So everyone knows sort of about Disney, the history. There's something they sort of wed with in there, the animation, the brands, the sort of thing. The CEO, Bob Iger, told a story, both of the presentation and this interview with CNBC, where, you know, he sort of talked about, oh, this weekend I watched Cinderella with my grandchildren. That was a movie that I watched with my grandparents when I was a kid. And this idea there's five generations, you know, sharing and enjoying the same content. And not just that, it's not just a movie. It's also Cinderella in particular. The castle is literally Disney's brand symbol. And and it's the center of all their theme parks and princesses. is a big part in their stores and their merchandising. And this idea of this sort of multifaceted, multi-part company where all the parts sort of feed into each other to create a whole that is greater than some very, very excellent and exciting parts is already unique. I mean, yes, Disney, we're going to tell this being a blueprint for companies on the Internet. But Disney is always and will always be very unique. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. But I think the part about this story and the history I want to get into very, very briefly is the part of Disney that is almost in some respects sort of the most traditional part of Disney, which is they were a TV network company and and like a big part of the cable bundle. And that was a huge part of their company, like well over 50 percent of their profits 10, 15 years ago and really drove a huge part of their valuation. And that's sort of at the core of this announcement in many respects. And so if you'll allow me to sort of like jump into the past for just a moment.
0: When you wrote your weekly article this week and then the daily that followed afterwards talking about it, I think you premised it a little bit with, yeah, this is very American centric. And as a foreigner, I have always found the American TV industry to be infuriatingly complicated and something that where I was just like, why does this exist like this? It's so frustrating and I don't even want to have to understand it. It shouldn't be like this. I remember being overseas, wanting to watch foreign movies, movies coming out of America and there'd be these release windows. And it's like the internet, that shouldn't need this. And 20 years later, I feel like part of this announcement is beginning of sweeping away the old and making the TV industry much more of a global thing where the business models and the release and the customer experience is something that touches everyone over the globe all at the same time. So I will absolutely indulge you this history and I'm excited to do so because I feel like it's going to become less and less relevant going forward in part, which we'll get to in a moment. But yeah, the one thing that really shaped the U.S. TV industry is
1: that the U.S. is really big. You know, it's funny, like you could probably make an argument that sort of all aspect and all strategy goes back to geography in some respects. And the reason why the internet is such a big deal is because it really does away with geography. If you back up far enough, that's actually a thing here. Like the reason the U.S. came about as it was the U.S. TV industry is because the U.S. geographically is very large. And, you know, back in the day when TV was a thing, it was broadcast. And You had to get a license and you had to broadcast over the air. And there was like three big networks back in the day. But it turned out if you lived in a relative remote area or there was like a big mountain next to you or something like that, it was hard to get that broadcast signal at your home, but people wanted their TV. And so what these remote communities would do is they would sort of band together and they'd build one really, really big antenna, like in the middle of town, and then they would run cable from that antenna to everyone's houses. Instead of like trying to get the signal on your own, you can sort of unify and get a signal all altogether. And it was great. And it's so it's really interesting because the whole sort of cable industry and the cable bundle really relied on the remoteness and the rural
0: nature of a lot of America. It's nuts when you think about it, isn't it? Like a whole industry got born out of just that
1: Yeah. And it's something that is really important because we're going to get into all the cable bundle formed. The thing with bundles is they're great for everyone involved, but how do you birth a bundle? Like how does it come about? And a lot of times it comes about just sort of like by accident and you end up in this place where you have this really powerful economic engine that the circumstances for why it came about are just kind of sort of random. And so in this case, you had all these cables with people's houses and what people in these communities would do is they would start putting on their own programming on the cables and the cables had tons of bandwidth, right? And critically, you didn't need a license because you needed a license to broadcast over the air, but these were sort of local community cable systems you could plug into them and add in some extra channels. And that's what you got was called community access TV. Like the name says it, the community had access to the TV system and they could put these channels on locally that people could add on and get in their homes. And so the cable suddenly started to actually have more content than over the air. I mean, it was relatively low quality, very localized sort of content, but you can already see this idea of where infrastructure being built for a different purpose starts to enable something completely different to sort of come about.
0: Where have I heard that before?
1: (laughs) It's kind of a theme in technology. So the next big sort of breakthrough was Turner and HBO were the two, and they're sort of in the same company now, but they used to be separate and they took advantage of another new technology, which was satellites. And what they did was they realized that, well, well, you could build a channel that actually leveraged all these cable systems, and you could get the signal to the cable systems, not with a broadcast license, because remember, those were heavily licensed, heavily regulated, and there's sort of the big three that had those, but you could use satellite technology. So, Turner, based in Atlanta, would have their programming for TBS, and they would send it via satellite to all these individual cable systems, which would then plug it into this cable that's going to people's houses. And now it was sort of bringing a scale factor to these cable systems leveraging technology to make it more sort of broad based and HBO did the same thing. And you started to get this development of an entire new ecosystem of channels that was not simply local, but was now sort of national and could compete. You know, Turner's goal was to sell advertising. It was the same business model as the broadcast channels, but they were getting scale not by buying broadcast licenses, but by leveraging new technology
0: to sort of get into all these cable systems. It's kind of cool how when you see the emergence of these new systems, how a lack of regulation actually allows them to flourish. And sure, once it starts to develop, it's probably wise to put some regulatory touch on top of it, but like creating a space for people to create and letting them go nuts and you get these unexpected things popping up, right? Well, yeah, it actually, this is a very cautionary tale about regulation because the
1: FCC actually came in and shut this stuff down. And so for 10 years, there was basically no development here because they started saying, oh, actually, you do need a bunch of licenses and all this sort of stuff. And then Congress moved in and said, in late 70s, early 80s, saying, no, FCC, you're going too far. Let's let this emerge. So it's actually a great example of one, how the absence regulation let a new model emerge. Two, regulation came in and Killed the model. And then three, legislation actually removing regulation. And you can just look back over the last 30, 40 years, the explosion of not just cable channels, but completely different types of content, completely different types of industry. I mean, it is one of the biggest poster childs for how removing regulation can allow for innovation there's ever been. And yeah, it's good to get that out after we had our sort of regulation feast last week. So we go on. So now we're starting to get this sort of explosion, this idea of stuff plugging in. And the other big development was in the eighties ESPN, which was a sports only network following on this sort of model that was pioneered by Turner in particular started out, it's going to be advertising based. You know, we're going to show sports and we're going to show advertisements, but they quickly realized that, well, people really care very passionately about sports. It's something that's very differentiated. Like there's only one NFL. There's only one NBA. There's only one major league baseball, all those sorts of things. Although they started with sort of like small college sports and things on those lines. But again, even there you have very sort of passionate fans and they're like, you know People really want this. We are doing these cable operators a favor by virtue of having this on there. Now it was a reason, even if you got a good broadcast signal, you would still want cable because now cable had stuff that wasn't available over the air. And they're like, well, we are providing differentiation to these cable operators. We should start taking our fair share. And so they started charging what's called an affiliate fee where you had to pay to carry ESPN. And it took a while. It took several years. As you can imagine, the cable operators weren't particularly happy about having to start pay for stuff that they previous got for free but the big sort of clincher was you know espn made good progress and they got sunday night football the nfl and it was on espn and if you wanted to watch this football game in the week you had to have cable and if you went to your cable operator and they were refusing to pay espn well there was going to be people were not going to be happy and they basically used this very highly, extremely differentiated set of rights to leverage into this new business model where they both showed advertisements and they also were paid affiliate fees by the cable operators, which were, of course, passed on to customers. So it's fascinating because this is a multi-part process. You have this sort of accident of geography that leads to these cable systems. You have the leveraging of technology being the satellite system to sort of make these national networks. And then you had the new business model finally sort of emerge on top of that.
0: And a system is born. It's
1: crazy. You couldn't recreate that if you tried, right? Yeah, it's sort of a point to keep in mind when these tech companies talk about building bundles is it's really hard to bootstrap a bundle. And in this case, sort of the most valuable bundle of all time, the cable bundle, which again, we talked about, it was great for everyone involved. The cable operators obviously still made lots of money. The content creators got paid on two sides from advertisers and with via affiliate fees. And at the end of the day, it still was a good deal for customers, right? It's weird because it's a psychological thing that's been studied where when you get a lot of stuff and you only use like a third of it, or a tenth of it, you feel like you're being ripped off because, you know, Oh, I don't pay for all those channels. I don't want them. Why am I paying for them? But the reality is the channels that you do want are subsidized by all those other channels because there's other people that want to watch those other channels. And this is why bundle economics are so powerful, because at the end of the day, it's actually a win for everyone involved. Consumers pay less than they would if they're going a la carte. And then everyone in the value chain sort of gets more money out of it. But it's interesting because psychologically, it doesn't feel like you're getting a good deal. So there's this interesting sort of tension around them. Anyhow, I promised you two minutes on the cable industry, and I've gone on for like 10 minutes. <laughs> but the reason why this is all interesting is with this affiliate fee model, it started to also sort of have knock-on effects, other parts in the value chain, particularly when it came to production. And if you had this sort of point in the middle where controlling distribution is what really mattered, right? And what happened was the cable operators control distribution, but – it was the content companies that created the content that drove people to buy those cable bundles, right? And we talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago. This idea that there was this core at the center, but it was split into two parts. And there was a basically a tug of war between those two parts about who got to keep most of the money. <laughs> yeah. And what the content makers realized was if we build our own mini bundles and make us particularly attractive to customers as a whole, we can extract more money. And no one did this better than Disney. So Disney acquired ESPN. They had things like the Disney Channel. They had ABC. They had a whole whole host of networks. And you could not sell a KO bundle if you didn't have Disney, which gave Disney a huge amount of sort of leverage in these negotiations. And particularly, you couldn't have cable if you didn't have ESPN. So you had ESPN, you know, I think they're close to $10 a month now. Every single subscriber to cable, even today, is paying that's flowing straight through to sort of ESPN's bottom line. And why? Because they had the most highly differentiated content that sold the bundle as a whole and that
0: consumers demanded to have. It's nuts. I mean, and it's one of these things where when you've had a system up for a while and you have lots of people subscribing and it grows over time and it takes time to grow. But now how many houses is that in? And every one of them is $10 a month. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's 95 million, I think, still have wow. some sort of cable bundle. I Actually, I'm not sure what it is exactly. It's getting close to 10. I think all the ESPN channels, together, but whatever, details. But there's a really important point I just made that I want to reemphasize, is that when distribution was the constraint, when that was the key part of the value chain, the appropriate response for a company like Disney was to bulk up was to build their own bundle to put together more and more stuff that gave them negotiating leverage with the cable operators. Like that was the core organizing principle of Disney's strategy was putting all this stuff together because we had, there's a single point in this value chain that matters and we need to get the most leverage on that point. So The reason why I went through that whole history is because what happens in a world where distribution is actually not the primary inhibitor? What happens in a world where, yes, you could still send content over the cable operators, but you could also send content over the internet and you could go sort of direct to customers? What's so interesting about that idea and what I think was the most interesting part of this announcement broadly is why should you treat all your content the exact same, right? You want to follow the same strategy with your content when the key point was distribution. But if distribution is now one of many important points and not the key point, your strategy needs to sort of fundamentally change and you need to go back for first principles and think about it.
0: It's so interesting. And it's so interesting on so many levels because if you're a startup, which is typically the view we take when we talk on this podcast, it's kind of easy because you skate to where the puck is. But I think the point that you just made before that we were talking about this is in ninety-five million houses or whatever it is, and they're paying somewhere around the order of magnitude of ten dollars a month. Yeah, and when you consider all the Disney channels, it's actually closer to like fifteen or twenty, right? That's only ESPN. <laughs> right. This is where strategy must also meet the pragmatism of the real world, which is like, okay, we can clearly see the writing on the wall. Like in 10 years, the nature of distribution and how content creators reach customers is going to be very different. And a company like Netflix is already starting to show how that's going to be. At the same time, you're invested in this existing world and making so much money out of it. Now, how do you straddle those two in a way that makes sense, where you don't just burn down what you You've got, but you build towards this new future. And even acknowledging that this is happening for a company that's been so invested and so successful in a paradigm, this is one of the things we've talked about. It's so hard to even admit that that's not going to happen in the future. This is part of why I was so impressed with what they did, but I think we should break it down and go through it piece by piece. I think that's right. And the comment you made
1: right at the beginning that there's so many things on multiple levels, I think sort of also applies here. So the level you just identified was this idea that Disney still had a lot of money coming in. You can't just give it up generally like you're not going to be allowed to do that from your stockholders or your internal constituencies or whatever it is. But also just because the future is in one way that Netflix is showing doesn't mean that's the future for sort of everything. And if you look at the internet, you can see this, right? What are the two dominant forms of what used to be on TV on the internet? Netflix, obviously, but also YouTube. If you think about YouTube, it's kind of like the community access TV of like the entire world, right? Anyone can go on, they can put their stuff on there to this sort of new sort of channel, particularly things like educational content or sort of like information or all that sort of stuff. Like YouTube is just an incredible resource that far outstrips anything that TV ever did previously. And it's a great thing for everyone, Like right? If you want to like a manual or a how to do something, YouTube has it from anyone and everyone. And it's amazing. It's really cool. And it's stuff that would never, ever have made sense in a sort of broadcast paradigm where you're fundamentally constrained by time. Because, you know, who wants like the how to manual for some toy or something like those ones? You're not going to make a TV show. about it. But guess what? That's on YouTube. And it's great. And then YouTube marries that to a business model that is sort of this advertising based where it's a sort of a self-serve model. It's scale. Hugely. Obviously, there's problems with all this, what we talked about last week, but that doesn't diminish the fact there's massive benefits to it as well. And YouTube has a very sort of aligned business. And, you know, again, the alignment can get them in trouble to our point, but where the advertising scalability ties into the content scalability, ties into the zero distribution sort of nature of the internet. And it's really a win win for everyone. Again, setting aside the stuff we talked about last week, but you think about that, that couldn't be more different than what Netflix is doing. Netflix is not doing doing advertising. They're doing a ton of content, but they're not doing like infinite. Anyone can walk up to Netflix, put their shows up there. They are selling an experience and they're making content that's available worldwide. They're buying content based on not just their customer base, but their anticipated future growth that gives them a huge sort of buying advantage over everyone else. Again, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but because when they calculate how much can we pay for a show, they're spreading that cost over 130 or 150 million subscribers or however many it is. And that's just a massive advantage compared to
0: anyone else who does the same calculations. And it's a much tougher sort of proposition. Right. Point incredibly well made. You know what else Netflix isn't doing? They're not doing sports. And I think that drives home at exactly the point that you're making, which is different types of content deserve different types of models. And the way you talked about it in the weekly article, which I thought was great, which is it comes back to the job that the content is doing for the customer. That's exactly right. I mean, sports, you got to
1: watch it live, right? I mean, yes, some people will watch replays and stuff that was on. But by and large, the entire drama and compelling nature of sports is about the fact you're watching something unknown. You don't know what's going to happen in real time. So, one, that makes it compelling. Two, it makes perfect sense with an advertising model because it's the one sort of content you're not going to skip through the commercials because there's nothing to skip to because you're waiting for the game to start again. And it's still something that draws sort of a broad-based audience that makes sense of sort of broad-based advertisers that still do make more sense for TV than anywhere else. And all of those things, one, make the current model a very attractive one. Oh, by the way, sports is highly differentiated. So people will pay those sky high affiliate fees to get it. All those make for a great model. And they're also all terrible ideas for Netflix, right? A huge thing for Netflix, why they can spend so much on content is they're building up this huge library of evergreen content that makes Netflix sort of more attractive to the marginal customer over time. Guess what doesn't do that? Sports, are you going to pay a ton of money for these rights for something you can only use once? Like, it doesn't make any sense for Netflix, and that's okay, This really drives home the point that I was trying to get at, where in a world where you are constrained by distribution, it made sense that sports and drama and educational content, information and news all had the same business model. Why? Because nothing mattered more than distribution. And if nothing matters more than distribution, not only is everything going to use the same model, but you'll try to be a conglomerate on the supply side to take all those different pieces that everyone wants for different reasons, put them together and extract that much more sort of the value out of the value chain, right? So that was the mindset before. But what the internet does is the internet doesn't, doesn't necessarily make live sports obsolete. It doesn't necessarily make cable obsolete. What it does is it resets sort of the paradigm that you have to think about. And the analogy I would draw is I wrote about this several years ago with Airbnb. What made Airbnb compelling, and I talked about this idea that Airbnb digitized trust just like Netflix sort of digitized time. And by using its sort of reputation and ranking system, you know, it used to be, if you were thinking about traveling and going somewhere and sleeping somewhere and being in your most sort of vulnerable position, you wanted to be at a proper hotel, right? At the end of the day, feeling safe matters more than location. It matters more than having a kitchen. It matters more than having a yard or whatever sort of things you might want. That was what mattered most. But once that aspect that used to be based on building a brand in actual like brick and mortar places, once that was digitized and using the sort of eBay style sort of reputation system, it didn't make safety not important obviously it's still important and you know i think it's something that Airbnb is really very aware of questions and scandals about that are a big problem for them so it's not that it doesn't still matter but it's not the only thing that matters right it's sort of like there used to be what's the australian phrase or someone stands up in a field or something on those lines tall puppy syndrome, right? Right. Well, this is like the opposite of that, where safety was like the tall poppy, but you really like were going to it. So I, Sorry, maybe it's, it's a bad use of an analogy, but kind of like the opposite direction. But the internet kind of chopped that down where safety still matters, but you can all start thinking about other things that matter as well. And that doesn't mean hotels were obsolete. It doesn't mean that hotels went anywhere. You know, when I travel by myself for work stuff, I much prefer to stay in a hotel, like all the amenities and not having to worry about other stuff or being in a sort of out of away place. Check- Checking in at 2 a.m. or something. Right. Exactly. Like It's still valuable to me. But now when I'm traveling with my family, I might check out an Airbnb because different amenities matter and there's much more competition in the space. Again, it's not like now everything in the future is going to be Airbnb. What it does mean is that the plane of competition has shifted because that one constraining factor is now one factor of many. And I think it's a similar thing here in the TV world. Distribution was the only factor that really mattered. And so all your strategy wind up around that now distribution still matters, but it's one factor among many.
0: And that sort of requires a reset of the way you think about your entire business. I think that is the perfect setup to then ask how Disney approached thinking about this through the lens of the three announcements that they made earlier this week. So ESPN around Hulu and also around Disney Plus. Yeah, well, I think just to stick with sort of the sports idea, you know, people are like, oh, well, they didn't, they're not actually putting SPN content on there. And it's like, of
1: course, they're not putting SPN content on there. <laughs> to your point, it's really, really valuable and profitable exactly the way it is. And oh, by the way, from a consumer perspective, yeah, of course they'd like to get sports content a la carte. But, you know, to do a job for a consumer does not mean like you give the consumer everything. It means that you provide sufficient value that they still feel like they're willing to pay for it, right? I got some feedback around this. like, oh, if they really cared about doing the job for a consumer, They would make ESPN available for streaming like no to get a job done for you does not mean you also get like a massage and like a pedicure.
0: Yeah. It made me laugh when you mentioned that. It's not a charity, right? Like you can go to market in the way that's appropriate. Now, if you're doing things that get in between you and your customers, then you have a problem. Or if you do this too long and no one has TVs and only people have computers and whatever, okay, then you need to rethink it. But this is working just fine as it is. Right. And like, where are people going to go? As long as people care about sports and if the only place to get sports is via the cable
1: bundle, then it's going to be a sustainable strategy. And again, there's a lot of people who don't care about sports and the bundle is definitely crumbling. What I think is going to happen in this space is that the number of people that get this sort of the traditional cable bundle, again, by traditional cable bundle, I mean, they're paying for a bunch of channels and that could be delivered virtually things like YouTube TV, for example, or it could be delivered over a traditional wire or satellite where it might be. So I'm kind of wumping those all in together. I think what's going to happen is that number of people will keep going down, but the affiliate fees charged by sports and sort of like live news sort of networks that really benefit from this live paradigm, their affiliate fees are just going to skyrocket rocket. So basically in the long run, I expect ESPN to make a lot more money from fewer people, but it'll sort of happen organically by the bundle sort of like moving that direction. And that's fine. It's a model that makes sense. And by the way, just speaking as someone abroad, and maybe it's because I'm abroad, there's nothing I would love more than having a proper cable wire into my home for live sports content. There's nothing worse than watching a game. I know you can't relate. There's nothing worse than watching a game and you see on Twitter what happened before it actually happened on your screen. Oh man, it drives me up the wall. I can imagine. (laughs) What is it? You have sympathy, but not empathy? Yes, exactly. a really smart move ESPN made and I defended at the time, and they got a lot of grief for this is they spent a ton of money on sports rights around the turn of the decade. And people are like, man, why are you doing this? The internet is coming along, blah, blah, blah. You're, you're going to start not making as much money. That's all true and well, but at the end of the day, what makes ESPN differentiated and profitable in the long run is having rights. And they saw competitors coming like Fox sports was coming along and they just locked everything up and they spent a lot of money to do it. And it was one of those things where yes, it hurt their profits in the short to medium term because their costs of goods sold basically went up a lot. But it was such a smart move the long term sustainability of their business, and it was a smart trade off to make. But the long and short of it is now they have all these extra rights for games they can't show because they're still constrained by time. And so now they can dump them on this streaming service, where again streaming's perfect for the sort of the long tail. And basically any revenue they get from ESPN Plus is kind of
0: gravy on top of the ESPN train that doesn't detract from the core model that is still. Still very strong. So smart. It's all marginal revenue. And you know what else is smart about it is it's starting to build the muscle of a direct relationship with consumers. And you said like the cable bundle is crumbling and I can imagine a world, it's probably at least years away, maybe longer, where that whole thing collapses. Guess what? They've built a muscle or a technology building direct consumer relationships, whatever, where they can conceivably go direct to their consumers. So I think it's smart from a short run perspective, like, Build the muscle with something that doesn't really matter and then you build yourself optionality in the long run that if that becomes your primary mechanism of reaching your customers, you've figured out how to do it and you're not doing a big bang switch, which is likely going to piss a whole bunch of people off.
1: What well, it's going to lose you a lot of money. Again, the power of the bundle is they're making money that $10 a month or whatever it is from every single subscriber. It's not just everyone that wants ESPN. You know, people are like, oh, why don't all the sports leagues just do their streaming services directly? It's like, well, because the number of people that are willing to pay the amount that the NBA would have to charge – to get the equivalent revenue would be so much higher you're only going to get your hardest core fans the power of the bundle is you get people that might want to watch a game like once a month or once a year because it's part of a broader bundle you're basically all working together to acquire customers in a way that drives way more revenue in the long run and even if espn went to an all streaming world espn will still have a place because if you like basketball you probably also like other sports as well and bundling them together is going to be a win for everyone because people always ask me, why don't the leagues just go direct? Because then they're out of the bundle. They have to sell their product on a single basis and even match revenue. Their price would have to be so high that they're going to kill their broad customer base and kill sort of broader growth prospects. Anyhow, I don't think ESPN's going anywhere. And I don't think the cable bundle, particularly around these sort of live contents going anywhere. And it makes sense to stick with that. And to your point, build some optionality, make some extra revenue. And frankly,
0: it's yeah, it's mostly gravy. Right. Makes a ton of sense. I feel like the really interesting part of the rest of these announcements is the part that we are about to discuss, though. Yes. So, yeah. So the reason I wanted to bring up that ESPN point is just this broader
1: point that it's all TV, but in the internet, when you're no iron constrained, you have to start think about each one individually and make the right sort of strategic choice for all the different pieces. And in the case of Disney plus, which is the big part of this, it fits in Disney very, very differently than ESPN does. I mean, frankly, I can see a world where ESPN is spun out at some point because you think about it, the value of ESPN to Disney was that it made the bundle of Disney content so valuable that benefited the whole company. Now ESPN is its own entity with its own sort of strategy. And if you're not going to bundle everything together, I'm not sure it actually makes sense as a part of Disney in the long run. You contrast that to Disney plus content, which is going to have traditional Disney sort of animation and family stuff. It's going to have Marvel. It's going to have Pixar. It's going to have Star Wars. It's going to have National Geographic. And then also 20 years of the Simpsons, all the Simpsons content. And that doesn't just make sense on its own. It's not just attractive on its own, but As we started, it feeds into the entire Disney machine. It feeds into Disney merchandising, feeds into theme parks, it feeds into cruise ships, it feeds into all the parts of this company that build this virtuous cycle, this feedback loop, that again, makes the whole greater than the sum of the parts. And that's not the case for
0: ESPN, but it very much is the case for this Disney Plus content. This almost reminds me a little bit, in a very different context, of the difference between like a vertical and a horizontal technology company, right? Like how Netflix's goal is to hit as many folks as possible. Whereas Disney's not just thinking about it with that context alone, they're thinking about it in the context of the other vertical aspects of their experience. It's almost like Google versus Apple in this regard. That's a really interesting point because this idea of the whole being greater than the sum of the
1: parts, what does that entail about this content? It entails pulling that content Off of Netflix, pulling it away from other places and bringing it into Disney Plus, into your own service, and with content, that's generally a bad idea, right? Because content has super high fixed costs that you want to amortize across as many customers as possible, which means putting it everywhere. But the difference here is they believe, and I think there's a very good reason to believe them, that they can overcome that deficit
0: by virtue of feeding it into their own sort of machine. Yeah, it's the same reason why Apple doesn't put iMessage on Android. And obviously, Apple doesn't monetize iMessage. But like this notion of having value inside that machine and then capturing people and keeping them inside the machine and using it to fuel all the different parts of the machine. In tech land, it feels like that would be more of a vertical strategy. Right. So there's a couple of sort of subtleties here, though,
1: that I think make it unique. So one, just to sort of double down on the value it is to Disney, the value is not just the money they make from the streaming service. At the end of the day, you could probably make an argument that they could make a similar amount of money if they were to just sell the content to Netflix, for example. But the value is, and Iger said this in that interview I mentioned, he's like, you know, you think about it, we make movies and the movie theaters own the customer relationship. We create cable channels and the cable operators own the customer relationship. He's like, the only place we actually really know our customers is when they visit our theme parks, but you're still constrained by people have to like physically come to a few locations in the world. And even then, how do you sort of maintain that relationship Once they're gone, it's kind of tough. And what this will allow Disney to do, they plan to have 60 to 90 million subscribers in five years, I believe is what it is. They will now have a direct connection to 60 to 90 million people that they can not only keep them engaged with the service, but imagine what that can do to sort of their theme park marketing or what that can do to their merchandise marketing. The sky is really the limit. It's a completely new opportunity that Disney, for all their sort of like pervasiveness and the fact that they're everywhere and everyone knows who they are, they've never actually had this chance to actually be that direct connection with consumers and to not just naturally organically
0: plug into the Disney machine, but to actually like, you know, pour gasoline on it. Yeah. I mean, even just thinking about it in terms of theme park marketing or marketing for specific piece of it, almost sells it short, and it didn't make sense for them 20 years ago to own the relationship for the content, whether it's the movies or the cable or whatever it is. But now you own that relationship and it's not just feeding them the content, it's thinking about the overall customer experience and you could do some incredible things like that. And if you meet people that are planning to go to a theme park, like it's an event and how you engage with them and you know exactly who they are and you can feed them differentiated, Content and you can build on that. You know when they've been, you know which ones they've been to. The marketing is the easiest, most obvious one in terms of what you do differently, in terms of what you change. But when you start to think about it as this being the touch point for the entire Disney experience, you are subscribing in order to access the content, but really they're viewing it much more holistically than that. And Disney, I feel like, have the right mindset in order to do that. I think you're right. The sky truly is the limit in terms of what this enables them to do.
1: Like, I almost hate to like, make up hypotheticals of what they could do because the way it's going to actually turn out will probably be different than we expect. But imagine, for example, Disney knows you watch a lot of like Marvel movies, for example. And now, instead of marketing you with a sort of come visit Disneyland, they can send, oh, your perfect trip to Disneyland and it's hitting every single Marvel sort of attraction and all the things that you might do. And now that, the attractiveness of that offer, it's so much more gripping. And that's just like peanuts if you think about what they could do. That's the most sort of obvious sort of lever that they could pull. And your point, 20 years ago, it didn't make sense to do this. 20 years ago, it wasn't possible to do this. The reason why we had these traditional setups of sort of like creators, wholesalers, retailers, you think about CPG and TV, it's the same sort of thing here. What was the constraint? The constraint was distribution. It wasn't possible to distribute to every single person on earth. You needed people in the middle to sort of manage that And handle that. It was a completely different skill set, and so it made sense to have these sort of neat bifurcations in the value chain. But now, thanks to the internet and its infinitely scalable nature and the zero distribution costs, zero marginal distribution costs, it now is possible to do this. So it's easy to be hard on Disney, like they should have done this, you know, five years ago. And finally, it's too late. But one, the capability was really only there relatively recently. Number two they would have given up a whole lot of money in the meantime. And like, that still matters. And then number three, you could almost make the argument that, you know, I think it was 2015 Disney sort of announced that ESPN subscribers were declining and that drove their stock down. I think like 20% overnight or something like that. And it was this big crisis or whatever you can argue that was the best thing that happened to Disney because it gave them sort of like the opening and the opportunity to make this sort of pretty significant shift their core business because they'd already taken the stock hit. People were saying they have to do something and like, okay, now we're going to do something. It's going to be something that makes way more sense for us in the long run. And it's going to cost us a lot of money. It's going to cost us the money to make all this original content. And it's gonna cost us all the foregone revenue from not selling that content somewhere else. But guess what? Their stock is actually up on the news
0: that they're going to lose a lot of money because it's such a clear vision for the long run. The whole criticism of Disney not doing this soon enough or just not going whole hog into this, I find so short-sighted. Like, Given the conversation we just had around how much money is still in the bundle, but also they're there now and they've just built this capability. It's funny, Netflix actually went through a similar thing and they have consistently had to go through similar things as they've laddered up. Like, They started with DVDs and then was it the Flickster versus Netflix thing? And the transition from going from mailing DVDs to actually streaming, like it's hard to get this right because you can't kill off existing revenue streams. But it feels like the extent to which Disney has managed it well, and your point right then around the stock market, they got the hit. And then it's almost like they never waste a good crisis, right? Yeah, exactly this gave them the opening that enabled them to like, okay, we're going to do something bold and it's going to involve us investing a lot. But you guys said we had to do something and here it is. And I think you're right. Like this is just the obvious thing to do. And I think there's so much upside from them doing it. What's well, really interesting though, that to bring us sort of like the third service, which is Hulu,
1: like the ESPN one, I think makes total sense. Like if you think about the idea that just don't mess with what's working and not only don't mess with what's working because it's working, but it's working for very valid reasons, right? There's a reason why it continues to make sense. And it's something that makes sense, you know, going forward. And then with Disney plus, well, you can plug it into this entire machine. They also have Hulu. And when they first sort of talked about streaming, I was very confused. You know, this is a few years ago and it's kind of like rumors or whatever, why they would have Disney content separate and also keep Hulu. Like what's the point of Hulu here? I've really come around this point. You know, we had a conversation on this podcast a few weeks ago about why Disney is very different than Netflix, where Netflix is an aggregator. Like they don't care where they get content. It's more about leveraging their customer base to have a buying advantage when it comes to content. And that's not a game that Disney wants to get in. Like, that would cost them all kinds of money. It sort of diminishes their core differentiator, which is not the size of their subscriber base, but it's the differentiation of their content. And Disney Plus is leaning heavily into the differentiation of their content. Like, it's a reason to sign up, and then it feeds everything else. Oh, by the way, it's only, what, $7 a month. Like, why cheap? Well, because remember we did the Apple-Google thing? They still want to reach as many people as possible, right? To get the biggest benefit, you want to get more people, which means you want to have a lower price. And I would bet they could actually have a higher price for Disney Plus that would make the service more profitable. Like, you know, the number of consumers that they will lose be more than made up by the additional revenue. But I think they're not thinking about the service as a standalone product. Like, think about the name. It's Disney Plus. They're thinking about Disney Plus not in the context of a streaming service, but
0: in the context of how does this plug into Disney as a whole. Maybe it would have been $15, but they're writing off $8 as customer acquisition cost, not, yes. not for the- Yes, for the entire company. Right, exactly. Yes, the, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's exactly the way to put it. Yeah,
1: it's like a marketing cost. Again, Hulu is different. And you think about the content that's on Hulu, guess what's not on Hulu? There's not going to be Marvel content. There's not going to be Disney content. There's not going to be Pixar content. There's not going to be- Star Wars content. It's all the other content that Disney has made and still has made in from other services, Like they still have all those TV channels. They still have all these muscles that were built for the old sort of world that are still valuable and still make good stuff. And I see Hulu really as being sort of a it's a hedge in a way, but it's also a way to sort of keep Netflix honest in some respects where, you know, Disney's still making content. And now if they want to sell that content and that content doesn't necessarily flow into the Disney machine, it's from FX or Fox Searchlight or Disney Studios or wherever it might be. And now they have at least two companies bidding for it, which is Hulu and Netflix. And at a minimum, if Netflix gets it, I think Disney will still sell that sort of content to Netflix. Netflix is now paying a higher price than they would have otherwise. right? We already know what we're going to do with sports. We already know what we're going to do with our Disney machine content, but we still have all this other content and all these other capabilities. What do we do with that? And I see Hulu is sort of maximizing their place
0: in sort of a Netflix world, and that's okay. It reminds me, I've got a few friends here in San Francisco who insist on riding with Lyft, not because they hate Uber, but more because I think they realize that if one company ends up dominating, then the pricing that is going to be impressed upon them is not going to be quite as favorable as when there is competition. And it's almost like some version of that, but for making sure there are multiple bidders for content. Right.
1: And Hulu also has other sort of like optionality in it. Like Hulu has a Hulu Live, I think it's called, where it's a virtual traditional TV, but multi-channel provider where you can get, you know, ESPN and all those other services. Hulu has some original content. I think Hulu's original content is, again, more about customer acquisition, where once you're already on Hulu to watch The Handmaid's Tale or whatever it might be, then you'll also get your other content on Hulu or you might do the Hulu Live. They're also talking about they're going to do a bundle where you can get Hulu and Disney Plus and ESPN Plus all in one package. And what's interesting is particularly if you think about the Hulu live aspect, there's a world where you can basically get all of your entertainment except for what's on Netflix. And again, like the Amazon and Apple stuff, which we can get to in a moment, but from one company. And it's like we're going to kind of slide back into that bundle distributor role, or at least this is a possibility to get there. And from a pure optionality standpoint, I think Hulu is worth it, even though it's
0: also going to cost them a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's also the prong of the strategy that I suspect that should it not work out. And I think it's the most questionable prong of the strategy where you could easily see them peeling it off and saying, okay, we gave it a shot and we weren't sure what the outcome was. This isn't working. And you cut it without necessarily impacting the two other parts, which are the core parts of the machine. Actually, I would go slightly further. I think
1: in the long run, it probably makes sense to spin out ESPN because it's kind of like it's self-contained thing. Like the value ESPN brought, to Disney previously was it strengthened their negotiating position with cable operators because you could bundle Disney Channel and ESPN and all those stuff together and that accrued to sort of everyone that was a part of that. Now that that's gone and ESPN kind of makes the most sense on its own and the differentiation drives by itself, I see that in the long run being something separate. Uh, in the case of Hulu, it's sort of a similar thing. Like if you were starting from scratch, you would really only have Disney Plus in the core Disney machine, but they're not starting from scratch. It turns out they still have all all these capabilities, all these content drivers, all these places. And like I said, I think there are parts of Disney that will still sell to Netflix. And I think that's totally fine. Selling to Netflix is a really profitable thing to do, right? You get to make content. You can sell it to TV makers. You sell to Netflix. There is competition for that content. You can earn a good price. Again, you can't critique company strategies based on a perfect world where they're starting from scratch. You have to critique it
0: as it is. And as it is, I think it makes a lot of sense. So just one clarifying question, when you say spin out ESPN, I assume you mean some point in the future when the cable bundle starts to become much less important than Disney standing on its own, bringing customers in through Disney plus is that right yeah I mean I don't know I, I think it like strategically it just
1: isn't that important to Disney. what it does provide it still provides excellent cash flow, which is useful for the rest of the company. also, I think this making a play to see if they can build sort of a new bundle by selling all this stuff together is certainly worth exploring. My only point is that espN. Its importance to the core of Disney has been reduced mostly to a cash flow generator. Whereas previously, it actually did make other Disney properties more valuable by virtue of helping extract more money from cable operators. So, again, just that part of the strategy is gone, which diminishes sort of the why is this a part of this anyway? That said, you know, don't diminish the importance of cash flow when you're trying to build a streaming service.
0: I don't think it's going to be spun out tomorrow, to say the least. Right. Right, totally. So I wanted to ask that clarifying question, but I don't want to lose the broader point that you made around just approaching this from first principles. And as I read your article this week, It made me think of another company, which is Microsoft and how Microsoft negotiated the switch to mobile, which is as transformative a shift to them as the shift to the internet has been for a company like Disney. And how Ballmer didn't really go back to first principles and was just like Windows first, Windows first, and everything was about prioritizing that. And it wasn't until Satya Nadella came in that he started to realize that the world had changed, that the underlying assumptions on which the previous strategy had been created no longer held true and things needed to be reassessed. And we need to prioritize more of a horizontal type, making people productive no matter where they are, because Windows, in terms of being a dominant platform on the dominant computing paradigm, like that was gone. And so we need to start thinking about things differently. And it took a different leader to come in to be able to do that because the previous leader was so embedded in that paradigm he couldn't see past it. History is going to look down very kindly on the way that Bob Iger has approached this because it is hard to do to be running a business as big and as successful as Disney is and to undergo a paradigm change and to have successfully navigated it as well as he has is not an easy thing to do. I mean, he is going to go down as one of the greatest CEOs of all time. I mean, not just the current switch, but also
1: the acquisitions of Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars and really getting at something core. You know, I've been beating on this drum from the beginning of trajectory. And back when Disney had that stock slide, I was kind of like saying, no, actually, I think they're going to be fine because highly differentiated content still matters. Right. And of course, I'm banging that drum. That's kind of like I'm competing with text on the Internet. Right. Differentiation. That's the way around aggregators it's the way to develop those direct connections it's the way to be able to charge people a lot of money and then to feel happy about it because they're getting something that is even more valuable to them and if you look back it's actually been sort of a 20-year process in many respects to sort of get to this point and yes they had to get over sort of the addiction to cable but they got the opening to do that they took it they were prepared they were ready to do it. they had the content in place and yeah it's super impressive but you mentioned the Microsoft thing. The other one I would talk to, we just talked about this a few weeks ago, is the Walmart one, where Walmart sort of looked at e-commerce and is like, oh, we're good at selling lots of stuff. We are good at logistics. And they just sort of failed because the core parts of the value chain were different. and They had built their entire value chain predicated on retail distribution. And now, I'm very optimistic sort of about their grocery efforts. Why? Because going back to what they're actually good at, which is actually moving physical bits around from wholesalers into people's houses. It turns out groceries have a fundamental constraint of freshness, and that makes that a better way to do it than sort of the e-commerce model. And they're seeing much more success there than they are in the other one. Again, it's so easy to look at this at a very sort of superficial level. You saw this with Disney thing. All the headlines were Disney reveals their Netflix competitor. And it's not a Netflix competitor. I mean, it competes for people's time. But, you know, Fortnite competes for people's time. HBO competes for people's time. Facebook competes for people's time. That's a sort of universal competition. But from a value delivered perspective, it's
0: sort of very different in the way it flows into the business model and the way they think about it is very different. It's such a subtle thing. Like you can imagine someone inside of Walmart trying to make these arguments. And if people don't have an open mind, you can easily see them being like, you're crazy. Like, why are you saying this stuff? This is what we're best at. You know, these guys don't know what they're doing. We will be fine. To be the person saying that inside an organization that's successful is so hard to do. And it doesn't surprise me that what you just described at Walmart, like I could see how that would happen. But at the same time, that's what impresses me so much about how Disney's navigated this because it really is a deft strategic touch that they've brought to the problem. Yeah. I mean, uh, (laughs) should I spring this
1: on you? go for it. It's kind of like how if you analyze the mobile market by looking at the PC market, and it makes sense because they're all computers, but you'll end up missing the point because not just distribution has changed, but the nature of the customer has changed what actually matters. Like you're selling to individuals, you're not selling to sort of corporations. The details matter, right? Like, why did I spend 10 minutes at the beginning of this going over the history of cable? Because if you actually don't understand the context in the history of how we got to where we are, and you just start with the world as it is, then you will draw all the wrong lessons, right? If you don't understand that the PC came about and that Microsoft became dominant, everyone knows it came dominant because IBM gave them the core layer. But that is also part and parcel with IBM being the most trusted company that large companies would buy computers from. And the reason why IBM was even making a PC was because there were PCs widely available, but large enterprise buyers didn't trust these little startups. They wanted to buy from IBM. And so I was like, fine, we'll put something together. And because they were just putting something together to make people happy, they made shortcuts, and one of the shortcuts was letting someone else write the operating system. But all that is a part of it, and you can't take lessons from that and say, well, Apple's doomed because Android has larger market share, right? I mean, we're retouching old battles, but I think it's a classic example of how not getting the details right, not just currently, and not just about your value chain, but also about history, can let
0: you make sort of wrong decisions. <laughs> I almost wanted to break you when you were talking about the reason that I was telling you this is so you enjoy the I was like, wait, it wasn't so you were just torturing me again on the American American no, I, I, actually, I, I actually had
1: to
0: go. This is the first time I've written it in a weekly article.
1: I've gone through the history and daily updates previously, just because it's also fascinating. Right. You know, it's shaped not just sort of like this one area. It's shaped how sports has developed. It's shaped how Hollywood has developed. It's shaped how tech has developed in these sort of areas. Like the importance of America being very spread out and these rural communities wanting to watch, you know, I love Lucy. The knockout effects are tremendous.
0: Yeah. uh, Here we are talking about Disney 50 years, 40 years, 30 years later. It's crazy. This does bring me to like, quote unquote, ancillary players. Everybody's thinking about this as like Disney and Netflix. And maybe that comparison head to head isn't fair because Disney has a much broader strategy than just competing on the same way that Netflix is. But what about Amazon? What about Apple? Like, how do they fit into this? Yeah, I can't remember how much we got into this
1: about Apple a couple weeks ago, but I see the Apple strategy with TV as. Definitely aping someone, but it's not aping Netflix, it's aping Amazon. And Amazon actually makes a lot of money with Amazon Prime Video channels. If that name sounds familiar, where basically they are the storefront for Showtime or HBO or these other, like, sort of smaller channels that are sort of individualized. And, you know, I think where Prime Video works in that model is Prime Video is a reason to have sort of like the Amazon Prime Video app already installed. It's a reason to already be on the service. And then you, buy into these other channels, and Amazon is taking a skim off that, and a pretty sizable one, I believe. I think that's where Apple's going. Remember, the new version of the Apple TV app is like this fully integrated thing where Apple's actually hosting the streams and all this sort of stuff. It's going to be one sort of experience, and then part of that is you can buy into these premium channels, and again, it's not just the big ones. There's a whole host of these little ones. Why will you actually use the Apple TV app? Don't say something else. Well, because Apple TV has a couple shows that you want to see, and you're already there, and then you'll buy these other ones, and they'll take a skim off that, and there's a a lot of money here like roku makes like hundreds of millions of dollars a year on this basically their strategies they sell you a really cheap box they make no money on those roku boxes they make the money because you're already in the roku box and now you want hbo and you're already in the Roku interface and you sign up for hbo and then roku's taking a cut of that
0: yeah, that is it's crazy. The internet era is great if you are one of these heavyweight machines that have enough content or some other big advantage that you can break gravity and manage to establish a relationship directly with a customer. But all these small bit players don't have enough weight behind them in order to do it and in a sense Roku or Apple or Amazon have become the new Comcast. They still own the customer relationship and if those small guys want to get to the customer, they still need to go through somebody else's railroad to get there. They can't go direct like a Disney or Netflix. Right. Which I think is okay
1: though, because building up the sort of capability to have a customer facing operation when your core competency is making like some great shows, like it's a huge undertaking. I mean, we didn't mention this, but Disney bought this company called BAM Tech, which makes the best streaming technology, you know, outside of Netflix anyway, they was actually came out of Major League Baseball. Then they spun it off and Disney acquired it. So not just that technology, but also they have to deal with customer service. Like the part about having the customer relationship, it's very attractive. It's also a big pain in the rear end. And again, it's worth it from a Disney perspective. Is that worth it for Showtime? If you're a smaller player in these value chains, your probably best strategy is to focus on what you do best and to sort of like let everyone else take care of everything else to sort of embrace your modular place in the value chain and optimize sort of for that. And so I think that makes sense. And I think places like Apple and Amazon do serve a role. What is interesting is Disney plus What will their relationship with Apple be like for sure? They'll have an app. They will have an app on the app store, but will they allow Apple to sort of sell the service and take a cut? You know, they have some sort of agreement with Roku. I'm not sure what it is. I bet Disney got a very favorable sort of cut if they have one. I mean, Apple is usually a little more reticent to give away their share. They did in the the context of Netflix
0: previously. So I don't know. What do you think? What would you do if you were Disney. If I was Apple, I would be like, the overlap with customer base is probably huge. And in terms of we're behind everybody else, we want people on this service, I would let Disney on and I wouldn't charge them anything. I'd just be like, you can go direct. But if I was Disney, even with that deal, I would probably say no, because my point of all this content is not to distribute the content and make money. My point is to get everybody into my machine. And in the same way Netflix will just very happily pull the plug on anyone that it feels like is getting between them and their customer, Disney should be just as ruthless. I think that's exactly right. I actually don't think the problem from a Disney
1: perspective would be whatever cut they give to Apple. Because again, the broader goal is to feed the larger Disney machine. It's not necessarily to make money on the service. I mean, they want to make money, but that's not the core goal. But the problem is the lack of data that Apple would give, the lack of a customer relationship that would allow them to establish. So I actually would agree with you. I think it will not be a part of Apple channels,
0: not because of the cut, but because of the access to the customer that matters to Disney. Well, do you know what's interesting? I wonder... if. If you get more of those cable dynamics where there's almost like a carriage fee where Apple is paying Disney something in order to put Disney stuff on this Apple channel. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe it's possible. We talked about strategy and deft touch and the whole part of this conversation that makes me very sad is like where HBO has ended up if we've talked up Iger in terms of his deft touch with strategy and willingness to start from first principles, if there's a home for a company that is so good at creating content, but the masters of the home are so terrible at thinking about strategy, it's AT&T. And I worry for the future of HBO. Yeah, I do too. I mean, AT&T keeps talking about like a streaming service, which
1: is really dumb. And the reason it's dumb is because first and foremost, at t doesn't have the feedback loop that Disney has. To build a streaming service is super costly in two respects. One, you have to pay to make the content. And two, you're foregoing revenue that you would sort of make otherwise. HBO's because they already have the model. They're in a little bit of a better position here, but they don't have part three, which is where the value sort of accrues broadly, right? There's so much value for Disney in establishing this customer relationship that they can afford to price it relatively low. They can afford to put all their content in there and because building up that customer base is so valuable to them. There's no similar feedback loop there for HBO or for lots of these other companies, frankly. And also, you know, it's not clear that at t has the money. They sold Friends to Netflix for $100 million this year instead of sort of keeping it off and reserving it for their service. I mean, they can undo that deal later. But like every time someone watches a rerun again, the less likely they're going to switch somewhere else to get it. At the end of the day, they couldn't say no to the cash. And there's talk about them potentially selling HBO Europe. Like They have all this debt. They just want the balance sheet for this. Or the model. Yeah, but in the meantime, they're driving out HBO's leadership because they want to make HBO an umbrella brand for streaming. And HBO's leadership wants to keep HBO being HBO, this very specialized, exclusive, we get the best content creators because we're HBO, not necessarily because we have the widest reach or audience or whatever it might be. And they're kind of throwing that away in exchange for this apparent streaming idea that it doesn't seem like they have
0: the fundamental structure or economics to succeed in. So, two reactions, as you were saying, they don't have the Disney thing what they <laughs> they need to obviously go build Westworld or something where the show is leading people to go wanna be inside of Westworld, and the folks who've watched the t v series will know what I'm talking about, but like it takes so long to build up all the muscle and all the mechanisms and the reputation and the right people and the right processes to do something like what h b o has built, but it can all go so quickly. It's like one of Bezos's decisions where you walk through the door and you can't walk back. And again, it, it makes me sad because they just produced so much amazing content and in some respects have led the way to revolutionizing TV and what people think about the quality of the content that gets put on TV. It used to only be like that for movies. And now it's like that on TV. And that's in large part because of HBO. Yeah. I and mean, if you think about it, like Netflix, is like the Walmart of TV, right? They have everything that you want. Some of it
1: will be good. Maybe a lot will be crap. You have something like Disney that is maybe like, I don't know, Best Buy, like it's a little more specialized. It's still sort of everywhere. But, you know, HBO is like the Apple store, right? And it doesn't have everything that you want, but it has stuff that you will pay a lot for. You really? Yeah, want. right. Exactly. <laughs> and the solution is not to make the Apple store more like Walmart. That doesn't seem like an ideal outcome. I mean, the other one that's interesting is MCU Universal. They have a lot of IP. They have theme parks. I think it speaks to how well-placed it Disney is that I would be skeptical about that service. Also, they have a good cash flow generator, which is the cable business and broadband business. Again, the world where you make content and you feed it into the existing paradigm and the existing paradigm now includes services like Netflix and Hulu, it's still a really good place to make a lot of money if you have differentiated content. At the end of the day, everyone still wants differentiated content. There's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of expense that goes into making it exclusive. Again, this is where your Apple Google point, I think is an interesting one to go sort of vertical when you were previously horizontal and the horizontal, it makes sense for the economics of your business. Like you really need to be sure of the payoff in the long run. And Disney is positioned to capture that payoff, I'm not sure that Universal is nearly as well positioned. If they're not as well positioned, then AT&T Time Warner is certainly not. Yeah. Oh, one more, one more. As long as we're on Cats and Dogs. Fox. So Rupert Murdoch, your favorite guy, I mean, he gets this for sure. Because you think about that deal they did. What he sold off was 21st Century Fox. And 21st Century Fox was all the studio content, basically it's selling to Netflix, it's selling this world. It's going away from this distribution leverage world into a world where it's just sort of a commoditized creator of content. And yes, you can create differentiated content, but you're in a weaker position than you were otherwise. But the parts he kept, he kept Fox News, he kept Fox Sports, he kept the Fox Broadcast channel. What are those? Those are the parts that still make sense in the existing paradigm, right? Like it or hate it, were the most highly differentiated channels that drives large carriage fees, not ESPN level, but well into the dollar figure is Fox News. And those are the parts of the company that he kept that made sense in the paradigm. And the ones that were kind kind of diminished in their importance and not really as valuable in a world where building this
0: bundle to extract you know money from the cable operators didn't matter as much those are the parts he sold off yeah, it makes sense. It's like having some insight into Murdoch from having watched for some time. Like his reason for wanting to play in that is not because he loved that stuff. His reason for wanting to play in that is because the bundle reason that we talked about with Disney and ESPN, it made the parts that he liked, the news and the live parts more valuable. And if you don't need them anymore, why have them? He just gets to keep doing what he likes doing. Yep. <laughs> Meddling. Mm, Exactly. (laughs) Very good. You know, it gets to
1: the point that one, Disney is compelling because they thought about the different parts of their businesses differently, but also just because Disney did it doesn't mean that everyone else should do it either because there are coming from different places, different strengths, different weaknesses, different core competencies. And, you know, it's funny. I think the big winners here, I think is Disney. I think Murdoch is a winner here. I think what he did makes all kinds of sense. I think he sold at the absolute peak of the value of those assets. And he sold to the one operator that could extract most value out of them. Like it was really a win-win transaction to sell to Disney in that case. I think Netflix is going to be fine. Again, they're the real aggregator here. There's still all those companies out there that are going to need to sell content and Netflix is going to be the buyer of first resort and they will continue to get what they need. And you could see a world where people have three or four services and Netflix is going to be one of them. And yeah, and everyone else is, they're going to deal with a new reality where they're a bit more commoditized than they were back in the old days. Yeah. The future of TV is just shaken out. I think so. And I think it's applicable to sort of think about the future of lots of things. I mean, we already made the retail comparison, but I think, you know, the same principles will
0: apply in the same way in lots of other places. Yeah. Yeah. This one's been fun. It's a joy to talk about strategy when it's done well, right? Absolutely. I think,
1: again, you can quibble about the timing and lots of different stuff, but by and large, I think that Disney is emerging from this in a place that makes a lot of sense for the internet world. And that's very impressive.
0: Yeah, agreed.
1: Sounds good. I will talk to you next week. Sounds like a plan. Have a good one. All right, bye-bye. See you, mate.